0: morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Okay, good enough. Fair enough. Enjoying this cooler weather a little bit? Oh, man, I am as well. Um, my name's Kenny, one of the pastors here at New City. If we haven't met, so glad that uh, you're here with us today. Um, and we are in the middle of a series on the book of Esther, um, Anyone here have a favorite uh, show on Netflix or Hulu? Just one of those that you can't help but binge watch? Come on, be honest. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. We, we all know that you like to binge watch. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, we all have those favorite shows that, that we kind of get hooked on. And really the best shows, I don't know if you ever notice they always end on a cliffhanger. You know what that is? Yeah, there's a, there's a twist in the plot. You think it's done, and then something happens in the last 30 seconds, and then you're just on the edge of your seat, and then they cut, and then because it's streaming now, you just watch the next one, right? Yeah, okay. Anyone with me? Okay. Um, kids these days will never know the struggle. Back in the day, having to wait a full week to find out what the cliffhanger, what was going to happen, right? Is anyone anyone remember before streaming? Yeah, uh, I remember that. Um, but in this series, um, uh, like I said, we're about halfway through it, and we really kind of ended on a cliffhanger a couple weeks ago when uh, Pastor Vince was preaching, and he got to the end of chapter four, and it really ended on kind of a doozy of a cliffhanger, um, and. Because some of you may not have been here for that, or maybe you, maybe you've never heard of the Book of Esther. I'll do a quick uh, recap before we jump into Chapter Five today, which is where we'll be. If you want to have your Bibles ready for that, but Esther is uh, she was uh, she's Jewish. She was an orphan girl, um, and her uncle Mordecai um, is her adopted father, who who took her in when her parents died when she was young, and they're both. Um, Hebrew people. They're both Jewish people, and they, but they don't live in Israel because the Jews have been exiled out of their country, and they are part of the Persian kingdom, and the king is named Xerxes, and he is the king of, um, the, um, of Persia, the, the largest, most affluent, most powerful empire that the world has known up to this point. This is about 2,500 years ago, Um, You can read all about it. Xerxes has been very influential in human history. Um, But Xerxes had a deal where he got all bent out of shape because he commanded his wife to come be paraded in front of a bunch of his drunken friends, and she said no. And so he got mad about it, um, and he decided that he was going to look for a new wife. And so he had a contest, and throughout all the kingdom, bring the most Um, The beautiful women, and he's going to find a queen, and Esther somehow gets into this competition and wins his favor, and she goes from Jewish orphan girl who's far away from home to queen of the most powerful empire in the world, and um, it's really been amazing, but there's one more character who kind of introduces a plot twist, and that's Haman. Anyone remember Haman? A few weeks ago, and Haman is the second most powerful man in the empire, and he is like the right-hand man of King Xerxes, and Haman um, loves to be honored, and he he is really upset about one thing because Mordecai won't bow in public before Haman to honor him. Everyone's supposed to. the king said, everyone bows when Haman walks by because he's worthy of this honor. Mordecai, for whatever reason, is stubborn, he won't bow, and Haman is so mad at him that he's not happy to just kill Mordecai, he wants to kill all of Mordecai's people, so he wants to kill all of the Jews everywhere in the whole kingdom of Persia, so we're talking Holocaust, and he has a plan to do it, they set a date, and he actually gets it to be declared a law on this certain day, this is going to happen. And so last sermon, Vince preaches about Mordecai going to Esther and saying, you have to use the position, your position as queen, you have to use it to save your people. God has brought you here by his grace, by his sovereign control. He's brought you here for such a time as this. She she has kept it a secret that she's Jewish. Not even King Xerxes knows that she's Jewish. No one... Uh, in the palace, knows except her and Mordecai, and so Esther resisted at first because it's illegal to go into the king's presence. This guy really doesn't like to be interrupted. Um, if you enter, there's a law that if you enter the king's presence, you will be killed immediately. If you're not, if you weren't invited, and if he doesn't welcome you when you show up uninvited, you will be killed. And there was guards. There was a guard there with an axe, whose only job was to be ready to chop off a head. (laughs) And so Esther says, no, I don't want to do it. But then Mordecai challenges her, and it's an amazing sermon that Vince shared. It was so powerful. I I urge you to go back and listen to it if you haven't heard it. Uh, And she decides to, to risk it all. She changes her mind. She tells, okay, go gather all the Jewish people in the city fast for three days. I'll fast for three days. And then she ends the chapter with these iconic words, I'm going to go before the king. I'm going to risk my life. And if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. And that's where we ended the sermon. <laughs> that's a cliffhanger, right? So here we are today to find out a little bit more of how the plot unfolds. So let's read uh, Esther chapter 5, verse 1. You ready? Okay. Two and a half of y'all are ready. I'm going to go ahead. The rest of y'all come along. Uh, Esther 5, one. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. I want you to realize that before we go any further, Esther has already broken the law. Just by her standing there in the place where the king is, uninvited, she's already risking it all. So think about what she might be feeling right now, knowing that she might have her head chopped off in a few seconds. And that's where we are. Then verse 2, when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court. Again, let's take a break. Um, This is the moment. (laughs) This is the moment. This is the prayers of all God's people. This is three days of fasting. This is what it has built up to. Will he welcome her or will he call his guard with the ax? It's completely out of her hands, and yet she's putting herself forward. When he saw her, he was pleased with her. He was pleased with her. And held out to her the gold scepter, that's the way of welcoming that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Notice she didn't ask anything, but the king knows this must be important. If you're going to risk your life to come into my presence, what do you want? What do you What do you need? And he has a pleasant disposition towards her. He's saying, I'll, "Whatever you want, I'll give it to you, up to half the kingdom." And uh, we should know that that's a That's a That's a ritual of welcoming and generosity. It's not to be taken literally, because he could only say that like twice, and then he wouldn't have a kingdom, right? <laughs> um, but it's a well, he's saying, like, I know you're here, you must want something, so what can I what can I give you? What's your petition? What's your request? Verse 4. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. So Esther has a plan that she's asking. She didn't spill the beans and say, hey, here's what you need to know. I'm Jewish, and you signed a law that says that you're gonna kill all Jewish people, and I need you to stop it right now. She didn't just Unload, she asked, hey, why don't you come to a banquet with me? And Haman, the one who made up this law. Come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Verse 5, bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. Uh, If you've been following along in this series, you'll remember how ironic that phrase is. That from the first chapter, when the king said, I'm so mad at my queen for disobeying me. I'm going to make a law that every wife has to that every man is going to be the ruler of his household and every wife has to obey the man whatever he says. That's the law he passed in chapter 1 and now he says, "Hey, bring Haman, let's do what Esther asks." Interesting turn of events where we see God's hand unfolding this. Bring Haman at once so we can do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your position? It will be, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Man, Esther really knows how to build up the tension here. <laughs> she, uh, we don't at this point we don't really know what all's going on. We don't really know what her plan is, but she's definitely got a plan, and she's definitely having the courage to walk in it. Let's pause right there before we read further. We'll read the rest of the chapter here in a little bit. But I want to say, what, what do we see so far in Esther chapter 5? So far, this is it. We don't see everything. We don't see the full picture. We don't know. I mean, we know, if you're familiar with this book, this is the story of how God redeems his people and saves them from the threat of being annihilated, so we know that. We know that's where it's going. Spoiler alert. That's, that'll come up in the next few weeks. We'll hear how that happens. But right now, we don't see that. And I think it's appropriate that we don't see it because we have to remember that when, as Esther is in the moment here, she does not know the future. She doesn't know the outcome. The scripture doesn't say she had any special revelation from God where God told her what would happen. She made a decision based on Based on her love for her people, the wisdom that she had, and her trust in God. She had to risk or she had to run. And she didn't know how it would turn out, so she made her decision and she handed the results to God, and then she just acted with courage in the moment. You guys see that? What we see Esther doing is looking at the circumstances that God has placed her in and looking at the position that God has given her, any power that God has given her, any intellect, any resources, the relationships God has given her, and she makes the best plan she can from that, and she acts on it with courage. And in this passage today, we're reminded that God calls his people to do the best with what they have and to trust him with the results. We're called to trust in God's sovereignty. Sovereignty means that he reigns sovereignly, that he is on the throne. Bad things happen, but God is a redeemer. And God is not out of control, God is in control. And so as the people of God, we're called to trust in that sovereignty. And when we trust that he's got it in control, no matter how bad it looks, that's what gives us the courage to act. Is that tracking? Even when we don't know the outcome. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but we don't know the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We don't know the future. You know who does? God, okay, okay, great. All right, good, good. (laughs) One for one. Um, God knows the future, but he created us without knowledge of the future. So what must he be asking us to do? To walk forward in trust and in faith. When we trust in God's sovereignty, it gives us courage to act. William Carey was a great missionary to the nation of uh, India, I believe in the 1800s. He said, if you you embrace and rest in God's sovereignty, you will expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. That's what it means to trust that God's in control, even when I don't know how it's going to work out. And so my first point is this. Esther shows us that risk is right. Esther reminds us that it's right to risk for the cause of Christ. What is life about? What is life all about? Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, he says this, it's my eager expectation and hope, and he's writing this from prison for the sake of the gospel. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's right to risk for the cause of magnifying the name of Jesus. It's right to risk for the cause of following King Jesus who has saved us. Amen? And we need this reminder. We need this reminder that it's right to risk because we tend to either avoid risk or risk for the wrong reasons. Just naturally, and maybe, maybe your tendency as an individual is more to one of those than the other, but I feel like that's the tendencies that we usually have is either to say, I'm, I'm going to live in such a way... as it it comes to my faith or as it just comes to my life. I'm going to live in such a way as I don't want to rock the boat too much. I want to play it safe as much as possible. I want to keep the status quo going because I can't manage too much change. And so I need to avoid risk when possible. Or we go on the other side in our culture and we say, no, risk is a good thing. When it's for your own ambitions, risk is good when it's for your reasons. With great risk comes great reward. Go big or go home. Go big or go home. So we land on, we tend towards one of those sides. But today's passage, Esther, shows us what it means to have courage, not to, not to avoid risk and not to risk selfishly just for ourselves and what we need and for our income or for our future, but actually to risk selflessly. She risked her own life. She risked her own position as the queen. She risked all the riches, all the everything from coming from an orphaned girl to having everything she could ever want. She laid it on the line. Was it for herself or was it for her people? It's for her people. But why, as we read this message, is it so important for us today? It's because of this. There are risks involved in following Jesus. There are risks involved in following Jesus. 2 Timothy 3 says this, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 15, Jesus said this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours. So the apostles warned us that if you want to live a godly life, there's going to be some way that you're going to run into persecution. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be ready to deal with hate. Because they hated Jesus. Some obeyed him, some reached out to him, but all of us have been guilty at one point or another of rejecting Jesus. And ultimately, he got killed for what he stood up for. So he says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be ready to endure persecution there are risks associated with following Jesus. Jesus didn't promise your best life now when He invited you to follow him. Did we hear that? He didn't promise that it would be easy- breezy and all the way on, all the way, um, always on an upward trajectory. How many know we go through hard times? So he didn't promise that, but what he did promise you is forgiveness of every sin you've ever committed and every sin you will commit that's under his grace. He promised you eternal life that's not just all the way distant in the future, but he says life now. It begins now. He promised you grace. He promised you meaning for your life and acceptance by the God who created you. But he says, if you follow me, you've got to be ready to deal with the risks that are involved. When you decide to follow Jesus, you're walking into all kinds of what-ifs. Anyone know that? There's all kinds of what-ifs if Jesus is going to be your Lord. Last week, we were so blessed to have um, a few guest uh, speakers. Were you guys here for that? Did you hear them share? And, and one of them has done ministry... Um, in Iraq for the last 16 years. So if you do the math, he showed up in Iraq in 2002. I think there was a war or something going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there was there has been a lot, a massive amount of persecution towards Christians and he was telling stories of dire situations where people are just if they if people find out they're Christians, they could be beheaded. And he was telling the story of talking to a bishop and saying, "Well, what do you What do you do under that kind of pressure? And he said, I would be happy to die for Jesus. And that was just one story that got shared last week. There are risks associated with following Jesus. And we may not be under those kind of situations, but there are risks in everyday life associated with following Jesus. There's what ifs. What if I tell people I believe in Jesus? What if I tell people I love Jesus? At my school or at my job, and they make me look stupid or they make fun of me? What if I give sacrificially, like Jesus said to do, and I give to the church and I give to people who are in need, and my finances suffer for it? What if it takes me twice as long to save up to buy a house in this God forsaken San Diego market (laughs) because I'm being faithful to give to what God called me to give to? What if? Jesus said, turn the other cheek. What if I take the humble road at work and then someone else who likes to self-promote gets the promotion that I wanted and I get walked all over? What if I stand up for the poor in this city and the oppressed in this city and then I get trampled on along with them? Jesus said, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What if I honor God? What if I do my best to honor God with my sexuality and the world ridicules me? Young person, what if I save myself for my spouse and I get mocked at school for it? What happens then? The what ifs can be Overwhelming. What if I say yes to what God is calling me to do with my life? What if you say yes to what God has put on your heart in an area to obey him, and your life doesn't turn out like you want it to? Y'all hearing me? The what-ifs can be overwhelming. So we tend to either find ways to avoid the risks, or we tend to only risk when we know that it's going to benefit us and and the lie behind all of that, uh, behind avoiding risk, is that you. The lie is that you can find a life that's risk free. You can't. You don't know if you're gonna die before I finish this sentence. <laughs> Just, I was like hoping no one died. But you get my point. You don't know you don't know. We don't know. It's a myth that you can go through this life without risk. And what God is calling us to do in this passage is say, hey, don't don't be so focused on yourself that you just avoid risk when I'm calling you to risk for something. And on the other hand, don't don't just focus on risk when it's going to benefit you. Because I may be calling you to risk for other people. I may be calling you to give something up for the good of my kingdom, for my glory, and for other people, and it's going to be for your good too. So Esther shows us what it means to risk selflessly. Esther risked dying for her people. Before we go on to read the rest of the chapter, I want to say this. There's there's one who did more than Esther. Who's Esther remind you of? Yeah, Esther risked dying for her people. Jesus died so his people could live. The greatest act of love is that. John Piper says this, there's never been a greater act of love than that Jesus laid down his life to save sinners. Therefore, the greatest act of love was enabled by hope of joy beyond the grave. Taking risk for the glory of God and the good of others is right. Not only is it right; it's more fulfilling. It's more fulfilling than doing avoiding risk at all costs, and it's more for fulfilling. For- I can't talk today. <laughs> fulfilling, fulfilling. For- <laughs> then, <laughs> <laughs> woo! It's more fulfilling than risking selfishly. Let me put it this way. You're not gonna be in heaven and say, you know, I really wish I would have risked less for Jesus and for his kingdom. No one has ever said that in heaven, in the presence of our king. Not even those who have given their lives for Jesus and for their faith in Jesus. No one has ever made a sacrifice for the kingdom and then at the end of it said, I'm a loser for making that. No. Our reward is so much greater than anything we could risk. Amen? Amen. Hmm. What is the Holy Spirit calling you to risk for the glory of Jesus? I don't know what it is. This is a broad category. It's broader than I can apply to each and every thing. But I can ask you this. What is the Holy Spirit putting on your heart where he's saying, I need to risk that for Jesus? Or I've been hearing the Spirit tell me to obey that, but I haven't yet because of the risk involved in it. What is it? How are you being called to risk for the cause of Christ in your life tomorrow? How are you being asked to risk How are you being called to sacrificial love? Even though you can't see the future in your current situation, maybe you're going through it this week, and you don't know what the outcome will be. Maybe you had major life changes this week, and you don't know what's going to happen. How are you being called to trust that God's in control so that you can have courage to act and do what you know to do? Amen? There's this old song, maybe you've heard it. I have decided to follow Jesus. And you want to heard that? Yeah. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I won't turn back. And I love that song. And I know that if you're more of a theological bent, it, we can argue over that song. You say, well, wait, who decided? <laughs> and uh, no, I get that. God is sovereign and saving. But I, I, I think if you hear the story of why that song was written, it makes a little more sense. And it doesn't even mean what we're arguing about it. Um, that song is actually written in India um, when the gospel was being preached there a few hundred years ago. And... People were coming to faith in Jesus, but facing severe persecution for their belief. And uh, an Indian brother um, wrote the lyrics based on the last words of of a man um, before he was put to death for his faith. The the man's name was Noxing. uh, Sorry if I said the name wrong, in the region of Assam. And he and his family decided to follow Jesus Gave their lives to Christ in the middle of the 19th century, so 1800s. And he was called to renounce his faith by the village chief. And he said, I have decided to follow Jesus. And so they executed his kids and threatened his wife. And he said, Though no one join me, still I will follow. And his wife was killed. And then he was executed while singing, the world behind me, the cross before me. And actually, the display of his faith is reported to have led to the eventual, the chief actually coming to faith in Jesus and many in the village. But it changes the lyrics a little bit, right? The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, I won't turn back. Esther shows us in this passage great courage in the face of risk. So what happens next? We're going to be in verse 9, and this chapter kind of makes a swift turn from focusing on Esther, who's the picture of wisdom, everything it means to have wisdom. If you've read Proverbs, Esther just sounds a lot like wisdom is described. And then it switches to Haman, who is a big old fool, (laughs) a prideful fool, So let's read as we go on. Verse 9. Haman went out that day, so he's been at the banquet, drinking with the king and Esther. Went out that day happy and in high spirits. So he's pretty stoked. Um, think Think of who's on your bucket list you would love to get lunch with before you die, right? Okay, well, he got to have lunch with the most powerful man, and the most powerful woman in the world, and he was the only guest. You think he would have like tweeted that out? Like, guess who? <laughs> guess who I just had lunch with? <laughs> right. So he's happy, right? He's walking out, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that Mordecai neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. So he's hot. He's running hot. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he called together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Verse 11, and here's what he did to feel better. He boasted. He bragged. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth and his many sons and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. I feel like her plan's working a little bit. Uh, and, And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But then this, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. You can hear the disdain in his voice. He's in need of some good counsel, and he gets counsel, but it's not good. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, so basically a gallows. Have a pole set up reaching to the height of 50 cubits. It's 75 feet high. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. Those don't seem to go together, right? This this suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Haman needed a gallows as big as his ego. Esther's a picture of courage and humility, but Haman is a picture of pride and foolishness. And Proverbs 16 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And here's why I think it's valuable for us to look at Haman today. As seemingly, he's on different ends of the spectrum from being high in spirit to be full of rage to being the only way I can feel better about myself is bragging. Did you notice he's bragging about how many sons he has to his wife? <laughs> You think she forgot how many sons he has? Like, <laughs> What have you got to do to feel better, Haman? Um... <laughs> Haman gives us a case study of this. What happens in our hearts when our idols are challenged? What happens in our hearts when our idols are challenged? An idol, you guys know, idols, idolatry, it's this wood or stone or metal image that's supposed to represent a God that's not the one true God. And, and in the Old Testament, that was one of the Hebrews' biggest problems was God said, don't worship idols. Worship the one true God. Don't worship created things. Worship the creator who made you and who made all things. So this is an Old Testament thing, but it's a, it's a New Testament thing too. And the New Testament picks it up and talks about not just literal, but metaphorical idols that we have idols even if you don't have a wooden or a stone or a metal thing that each one of us in our hearts has things that we worship and we put in the place of God an idol is anyone or anything that takes the place of God in your heart an idol is anything or anyone who sits on the throne of your heart you guys know what I'm saying We were created to worship God. That's how we're most fulfilled. And worship is always happening in our hearts. Did you know that we can't decide to stop worshiping? We can only decide what to worship or who to worship. If it was water going through a hose, we can't turn the hose off. We can only just point it. We're always worshiping someone and one way to say it is an idol is a good thing, often a good thing in a bad place. It's a good thing to be healthy. It's a good thing to want to be healthy. It's a bad thing if that is the number one thing in your life. And if you don't have it, nothing else is right. It's a good thing to want to find a spouse. It's a good thing to want to have a good marriage. It's a good thing to want to have good kids. Amen? Okay. Yeah, Amen. Those are all great things that we need to pursue, but it's bad when those become the things that we worship with our whole heart. Can you see what Haman's idol was? It was honor. It was public respect. It was people need to recognize that I'm honored. You know how you can tell? Because if you didn't have that, nothing else mattered. It didn't matter that I'm rich beyond compare doesn't matter that I'm the second most powerful man in the world. doesn't matter that I can make a law go out to the whole world like that. It doesn't matter that I have 10 sons, which in, to the Persians, the only thing valued more than sons was if you were, had valor in battle. So he had 10 sons. He was honored by the king. He was elevated among the other nobles. And then did you see what he says in verse 13? But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that. Do you guys see what's going on there? How can you tell what your idol is? It's that. What shakes you, what rattles you to the core, what angers you without thinking about it? What makes you inconsolable if it happens? We should we should sadness is natural. We should all be sad when tough things happen. Happen. But what is it that says, if I don't have this, then nothing else I have matters? What is it in your heart that says, but none of this gives me, I've been blessed by God. He's forgiven me every sin that I have. He's promised me eternal life. He's sovereign. He said he's in control even when things aren't looking good. He's blessed me with brothers and sisters to encourage me and to share my burdens and to pour into my life. And he's given me a great family and he's brought me out of addiction. And he, But none of this matters as long as I see that. You guys know what I'm talking about? Why do we need this lesson today? Because almost by default, we believe the lie that our biggest problems are outside of us. When Jesus said, it's not what's outside a person that defiles them, it's what's inside a person. And what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. And that's what defiles a person. Even Jesus said our biggest problem is not external things, it's internal things. And if we're worshiping idols internally, it doesn't matter what good things are going on externally. If you believe the main source of your joy is external circumstances, you're enslaved already to your circumstances. You're never going to find real joy. And when you do feel joy for a little bit, it'll be filled with anxiety because you're just waiting for the downturn. You're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Your heart is about as stable as the stock market. just follows circumstances. If circumstances are the source of your joy or your peace, or your significance, or your approval. We following? It's slavery. But if God is on the throne of your heart, if God is the one you worship above all other things, above all other good things, if God is on the throne of our hearts, then we're free. If you're going through it today, when God is on the throne of your heart, Your circumstances may explain you, but they don't define you because God defines you. You can endure hard times when God is on the throne of your heart because you know who's in control. You can endure sadness because you know who gives you real joy. You can endure even success without becoming prideful and puffed up because you know who gives you true meaning and significance. Amen? Amen. When God's on the throne of your heart, it doesn't matter what's going on on the outside. You have the ability to have joy and have meaning and have significance because of who is on the inside. And what we see in Haman is a heart that's ruled by idols instead of by God. And if we're honest today, our hearts are like that too. Even we who know Jesus. We do this more than we think. I do this more than I think. I have God's grace. I have God's forgiveness. We have God's joy. We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, giving us direction, reminding us of truth. We have, no matter what goes on in this life, Jesus has promised life eternal to his followers But none of this gives me satisfaction as long as that situation at work isn't fixed yet. As long as my relationship is on the rocks, I can't have joy. As long as my kid is wilding out, (laughs) I can't have joy until that gets fixed. You can. You can. You can. You can have hope in the midst of the circumstances, not just when you get past him and look back and see how good he is. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about God's sovereignty. It works like a a rearview mirror. Objects in mirror are close. We look back and we see, oh yeah, God was really doing some good things, but we think it's further back than it is. No, he's still working right now. He's still sovereign right now. And you can have hope right now if you turn away from those idols and turn to the true and living God and say, God, I I repent, I turn away from wanting anything other than you, more than you. Amen? What is it that you might be idolizing right now? Is it a relationship? Is it a dream of yours? Is it financial? Is it your career? Is it your health? What is an idol that God might be calling you right now as we're talking to turn away from and turn to him and worship him and realize that not only is this true, it's good and right. It's the best thing for you. Where do we get this kind of courage that Esther is talking about today? Where do we break free from the power of idols in our hearts? And, and, and that's where I want to come to the last point. Romans 15.4 says of the Old Testament, Paul writing says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. That means everything that we've read today is meant to teach us about God, but it's also meant to give us hope. And here's where our hope is today. As, as people who are not perfect and as people who find our hope in other things, as, as people who fail to risk when God calls us to risk, here's where our hope is. We have a different king. See, the tension of this story rests on the fact that the king is willing to kill anyone who comes in his presence uninvited. That's why it's even a risk for Esther to do this. But our king, our king is welcoming. Our king has an open door policy. (laughs) We're not under threat of death when approaching him. We have Free access to the true king of kings. We have free access, but it wasn't cheaply bought. Our access pass is signed in blood. Jesus was willing to give his life so that we could be welcomed into the presence of the king. That's why his word says in Hebrews 4, 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's why it says in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything. You know what's covered in anything? Anything. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Here's the good news. Xerxes would shed the blood of anyone trying to have access to him, but King Jesus let his own blood be shed so we could have access to him forever. Xerxes didn't want anyone to come into his presence uninvited, but King Jesus is standing here today inviting you into his presence and into healing, and into life. Even Haman points us to the gospel. Haman lived for his glory, but Jesus lives for the glory of God. Haman made God's people his enemy, but Jesus makes his enemies his friends. Amen? Anyone thankful for that? Anyone thankful that when we haven't bowed to Jesus, he didn't declare war on us, but yet he laid his life down for our sin? Thank you, Jesus. Haman wouldn't forgive one man for one thing, but Jesus will forgive anyone for anything. Haman made a gallows to hang a man on, but Jesus came as a man to hang up on a cross for all men. Haman forced people to bow to him in fear, but Jesus invites people to bow to him in love. Haman boasted about what he had done, which is pride, but when we boast about what Jesus has done, it's worship. Esther risked it all. Jesus gave it all. Esther waited three days to leave her chambers and save her people, but Jesus waited three days to leave his tomb and save his people. Esther was clothed in royal robes, but in Jesus Christ, we are clothed in the splendor and the righteousness of our King. Esther was welcomed into the presence of King Xerxes once, but because of King Jesus, we're welcomed into the presence of God continually. Esther prepared a lavish banquet for King Xerxes, but King Jesus is preparing a more lavish banquet for us. Xerxes offered Esther half of his kingdom, but Jesus offers us his entire kingdom. Whatever you're idolizing, whatever has captured your heart, turn from it. Turn from it today into the arms of Jesus. Ask the Spirit to keep you focused on Jesus. Ask the Spirit to free you from the inside, to free you from the slavery of your own circumstance, to trust in God's sovereignty and act in courage, whatever the situation you're facing today. And I don't know. I know that people are facing situations. I don't know what it is. But whatever risk may be holding you back, ask the Spirit for more trust and for more courage to follow Jesus because of what he's done for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. God, we thank you for your presence. Holy Spirit, we thank you for welcoming us and inviting us today. For convicting, challenging, and encouraging us. God, I pray that over the next few moments, we would have a time of of true repentance and true turning to you. And God, I also pray for a powerful move of your spirit. I pray that chains would be broken, as it were. That there may be people, individuals here who have um, been numb to their spiritual situation. I pray that you would make the sirens go off to say, I need to turn to God. I need to turn away from anything else that I'm worshiping and turn that to God. And Lord, if, if, if there are those of us here who are crippled by fear and anxiety of what you're calling us to do, I pray that, Lord, that you would set our hearts free by the power of the gospel, by the power of your spirit alive in us. And God, if there's someone here today who has not yet known the life that you offer, I pray that you would begin to turn on the lights of faith in their heart and the desire to turn away from sin against you and from an old life and to walk towards new life with you, Jesus. That they would cross the line of faith today. God, we thank you for this time. Thank you for this word. Speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.